This evening we have a special guest speaker. We have Doris Fuller. She is the executive director of the Treatment Advocacy Center, the nation's only national nonprofit dedicated to making treatment possible for people with severe mental illness by reforming treatment laws and promoting their use. Following tragedies like the ones in Tucson, Arizona, the one in Newtown, the Treatment Advocacy Center, it becomes a central source of data, information, and comment on preventable tragedies associated with untreated mental illness. Ms. Fuller, she appeared in print and broadcast nationwide discussing mental illness treatment issues, including violence, public policy failures, and the problems families face in trying to get treatment for a loved one with a severe psychiatric disorder. She co-authored The Killers We we let loose for the Wall Street Journal and millions affected by systematic abuse. She's also the co-author of the 2012 Treatment Advocacy Center study, No Room at the End, Trends and Consequences of Closing Public Psychiatric Hospital Beds. Ms. Fuller is an award-winning former reporter for the LA Times, and she's also the mother of a beautiful and talented young daughter who was stricken with a psych psychotic disorder as a senior in college. Ms. Fuller. I sort of feel like the bad news bear after the joyfulness of, of this service. Um, I was thinking about that. But, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know where all of you were the morning of the, uh, the Newtown shootings, but, you know, most of us were probably going about our business and, and possibly doing something joyful, and it, it tore through our lives um, as it tore through Newtown in, in, in a terrible fashion. So I'm going to take a few minutes um, uh, to tell you a little bit about the relationship between untreated severe mental illness and violence like this. Um, but I'm going to try to end on, if not a joyful note, a hopeful note, because uh, there, there is reason to have hope, and there are things you can do. So um, I think I'll take my watch off, because I, the last thing I would want to do is not to get to the hopeful part. Uh, I was with the uh, a 60 Minutes producer a couple weeks ago, um, who's working on a segment on schizophrenia, and he said, and we were talking about what he needs for the segment and all, and he said, you know, what we try to do with a 60 minute segment is to make sure everybody gets up the next morning and say, uh, says, I learned something from that. I learned something last night from 60 Minutes. So I'm hoping that when you get up in the morning, you say, I learned something. I'm going to sort of do this in a, in a question and answer format. I'm going to ask myself a question, then I'm going to answer it. Um, if we have any time left, I'll answer any questions and I'll be out afterwards. Uh, the treatment advocacy, uh, the commercial announcement, we are the only organization in America that focuses exclusively on the treatment needs of people with the most severe mental illnesses. Basically, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, bipolar with psychosis, some major depression has psychosis, basically the, the disorders that render people incapable of distinguishing reality from unreality and incapable of making informed medical decisions for themselves. Um, 
We're the only organization trying to recalibrate public policy uh, to amend some of the problems that have emerged in the last 50 years as a result of public policy. And, and frankly, we're the only group that talks about some of these uncomfortable truths like uh, mental illness and, and violence. It's somewhat of a controversial topic. So, um, and yes, I, it's, it's personal for me as well as professional. Uh, my daughter was, uh, a, and is, you know, a, a beautiful young woman, super student, uh, accomplished athlete, all the things you'd ever want of your, your, uh, your daughter, your son. And um, she was stricken with uh, a psychotic disorder at the age of 22. And she has lost the last four years of her life to being in and out of hospitals um, through involuntary treatment. And this is part of the hopeful part. I'll come back to that. Uh, but um, so it makes this very personal for me, as well as professional. And it informs what I'm going to tell you. In part because when my daughter is psychotic, she is violent. She's not like a uh, James Holmes or a Jared Lochner. She doesn't want to hurt other people. She wants to hurt herself um, in grievous ways uh, in order to save the world or to save love in the world. Um, and I can, it's, it, it hurts me to say I can understand why some people with untreated mental illness kill because when you've seen someone who can hold their hands in boiling water long enough to get third degree burns because they think they're gonna save the earth if they do this. You can understand why they shoot people. So, gun violence and mental illness. I'll go through some quick questions um, and try not to be too much of the bad news bearer. Uh, does, it does it ever seem to you that there's more of these killings, mass killings, than there used to be? It's because there are. Um, from 1950 to 59, there was one mass killing in America. From 1990 to 99, there were 73. Uh, depending on the count you're keeping and people use different, and when I say a mass killing, I mean four or more dead, not counting the shooter or the killer because they're not always shooters, um, and non-family members. Family members don't count when you start doing mass killings. So. Um, it doesn't matter what study you look at, the trend line is not good. Uh, why is this? You know, there are as many explanations or as there are fingers to point at someone, but the one thing that is statistically significant is that we did, in fact, close 95% of our state, our public psychiatric facilities over the last 50 years. So we now in America have as many beds per 100,000 people as we did in America in 1850. This is not really progress. Um, and to be sure, the state hospital system was overdue for reform. There were a lot of problems with it. But there were not, you know, we didn't have, we, we don't have fewer people with need today. And so we have fewer places to treat them. Are people with mental illness more dangerous? more violent than the rest of us? This is a question I get a lot. Um, and the answer is it depends. If somebody is in treatment, no. There is no research to indicate that people with the most severe illnesses uh, are any more dangerous than anyone else when they're in treatment. When my daughter is stable in treatment, she can't believe what she did when she wasn't in treatment. Um, and she would never imagine doing the same thing. Um, 
So if people who are in treatment are no more dangerous, people who are not in treatment with a severe mental illness, a psychotic disorder, um, yes, they are. About, at most conservative estimates, 10% of the homicides in this country are, are committed by people with an untreated severe mental illness, half of the rampage killings. Also, a grossly disproportionate share of suicides. I mean, the most likely victim of a violent act by an untreated mental, a person with mental illness is themselves, is that they kill themselves. Um, who else is at risk? Their families. You know, we all get worried after these things. Could this happen to me when I go to the movies? You know, uh, anything can happen. But really, when people have untreated severe mental illness, their, their most likely target is their mother. Um, their children, grandmother, sibling. It's their family and their caregivers. Um, and in some of those cases, they kill them because they're trying to save them. Uh, one of my own best friends lost her mother when her schizophrenic brother killed their mother because he was saving her from Satan. And that was his ideation. Just like my daughter thinks she can save the world, only when she's sick. Um, can we predict these things? Uh, how, do, how do we predict? How do we stop it? I mean, that's really the question. How do we prevent these? There are red flags. You can learn the red flags. Um, there are things, you know, well, someone in the last service had brought me this article, uh, shooting suspect, this is from yesterday's paper. I mean, you see these headlines all the time. Shooting suspect, a ticking time bomb. Someone said that he had, you know, he had been behaving erratically for, for 10 years. Usually there are red flags. And so as a country, we can decide, sort of like there are red flags for heart disease, and you can decide whether you're going to work on your cholesterol or your high blood pressure or whatever it is or not. You can monitor it and treat it or not. As a country, mental illness, do we monitor and treat it? Not so much. Um, we figure it's someone else's problem. Uh, many families see the red flags and they just hope they'll come down. They just hope it'll go away. I mean, I personally know a family in Colorado right now with a young son. He has many, he has many of the risk factors for violence and he's psychotic, untreated, thinks he's Jesus Christ, keeps threatening to kill his mother. Um, she's put a lock on her door, sleeps with a baseball bat by her bed. Colorado has a great state law. She could get him into treatment. He wants to work for the State Department someday, and she's afraid that if he gets committed to treatment, he won't get a security clearance. So she's not getting him in treatment. You know, there's a whole family at risk because of that. So um, there are red flags, and part of prevention is learning the red flags and acting when you see the red flags. Would stricter gun control eliminate all mass killings? Well, you know, if you, if you have less lethal weapons, you're going to produce less lethal results. That that's, goes without saying, so of course. But would you eliminate all of it? No, because it doesn't take a gun to commit mass violence. I mean, the day of Sandy Hook, a psychotic man in China attacked children in an elementary school and uh, wounded uh, 32 of them. Um, in the last three months of last year in China, psychotic men killed or wounded 40 school children in three months. Uh, in California, in the last decade, there were three mass killings with automobiles. People drove them into places and killed people. So, 
Getting more to the hopeful part, is there anything we can do to prevent tragedy? What can you do? Where is the hope? We'll never prevent all tragedy, but there are some public policies that would make a difference. One, we can stop closing public hospitals. We need to recognize as our policymakers need to recognize that they're, you know, they'll say, well, we can't afford to have this hospital. Well, you know what? We can't afford not to have these hospitals. Um, and and it, because it affects all of us, but there's, you know, and this doesn't sell as well as the cost, but it's, it's humanitarian. I mean, it's, it's about, it's also about compassion for, for people. If someone, if, if, if you had a loved one with Alzheimer's, who was wandering around in the streets and not wearing clothes and not eating and whatever, nobody would hesitate to pick them up and take them into care. So why are people who can't think treated differently? Um, so we can stop closing the hospitals and restore enough beds to take care of people so that we're not back at 1850 levels. We can change state laws. There was a, uh, over the last 50 years, we had a pendulum swing the laws were too liberal at the time, deinstitutionalization, the closure of the hospitals began, and we got to a point where you have to be dangerous to get committed. If any of you, you know, probably someone or more than one person in this room knows a family who struggled to get a sick loved one into treatment. It is, a, and what are they told? Well, he's not dangerous. There's no blood on the ground. I mean, it's literally that, that bad in some states. Um, so we need to change those laws, and then we need to use the laws that we have. Um, because a lot of states like Colorado, James Holmes could have been treated. Jared Loeffner could have been treated. We don't really know what the story was with Adam Lanza, but many of these people, there were laws on the books that would have helped them, and they weren't used. And what the laws do, basically, is enable us to move that person toward recovery by committing them to treatment until they're well enough to choose treatment. Does the treatment work? There are problems. You've heard them all. I mean. Uh, all of the treatments for mental illness have side effects. You know, some of them are really crummy side effects. Uh, the, the drug that finally cleared my daughter has uh, one really bad side effect, which is the complete crash of your white blood cell population, which can lead to death. Only 0.8% of the population gets it. Guess what? She didn't die, but she ended up in that 0.8%. That's a really lousy side effect. But you know what? There are other drugs. There are other forms of treatment. There's a lot of experimentation. And there are side effects of non-treatment. And it's not just violence. It's that a third of the people living on the streets homeless have mental illness. We've got at least 20% of the people in jails and prisons are there because they did something when they were mentally ill. A third of the people in solitary confinement 25,000 men and women live in solitary confinement in jails and prisons because they're mentally ill. It's, you know, as a society, we should view this as a national disgrace. So um, what can you do? That, well, so the, the, the hopeful part is, you know, there is treatment. Treatment works. Most people respond to treatment. With treatment, you know, in most rooms, there's someone who has one of these diagnoses or a, a loved one who has it, and you don't know because they've got a job. They're in treatment. They've got a job. They're married. They have kids. They're not wearing a, a, a shirt that says, I have bipolar, because they're functioning in treatment. So what we want to do is give everyone the chance to get there. And for some, that will involve 
involuntary treatment to a, a commitment to a hospital, commitment to live in the community and stay on their meds. And I can tell you more about that if uh, you want to know afterwards. What can you do personally? These are my three things, three simple things. Um, they won't change the world, but they'll help start it. Um, one of them, back in the back, there'll be a, a sign-up sheet uh, that you can put your name and email address on. We send out news uh, every Friday and some other stuff now and then about mental illness trends, research, data, studies we've done. Um, it's a big subject. It sort of breaks it down into bite-sized pieces, so you just get a few bites every Friday in your mailbox. Um, and so it's a, it's a place to start. We have a lot of resources. Like I say, we're the only ones with these resources. So if you sign up or if you go to our website later and sign up, then you'll get the emails. That's number one. Number two, some of the emails about twice a year actually ask for money. Um, I'm not going to ask you for money, but I will tell you that, that one of the things you can do is to support us. Um, and, and to support those who are trying to get treatment for these people. There's, there's a number of ways you can get involved with that. Um, and, you know, the third thing you can do is in this audience, I mean, if you know, we have seven bills pending in Sacramento right now that would, would make treatment more possible for people with these severe mental illnesses in California. Um, your own um, Assemblyman Yee is the author of at least two of them. Uh, someone told me there's actually 10. I think it's seven. But if you know somebody, uh, well, you can write to your, you don't have to know them. You can contact your, your elected officials. You can write letters to the editor. You can do all of those advocacy things that, um, that actually make a difference. And um, if you do know someone in a position of influence, feel free to see me afterward or take one of those forms, make a note, call me and I'll tell you about my brother who's got the, the keys to the kingdom. So um, those that, and, and those sound like small things, and I want to make them small things. There are bigger things, too. But, but you can help. You can make a difference. We don't have to have these tragedies. You know, we can have a more joyous, joyful world for, for everybody, and not so many victims of a treatable disease that, as a nation, we've just decided to ignore. Thank you very much. And even though you say you don't want to be the bad news bearer, part of what we're doing here is that it's to be conscious of what's out there. Since Connecticut, we're deeply conscious of it. And it's why in every service we have this aspirational part of it. And the way we always close the service is that we move with the Elenu. And the Elenu was thrown in much later. It was actually part of the High Holiday Liturgy. And people liked it so much, they said, you know, let's do this every single day. Because the Elenu talks about this world being renewed and redeemed and actually finally reaching this point where we have taken care of all those people, where there's no longer that violence. 